Today we're talking about uh, what it means to be born again as part of this The Heart of Christianity series. And my question, as we're going to entertain throughout this whole thing, is when and how has love transformed you? When and how has love transformed you? Now, back in the late 40s, early 50s, uh, Billy Graham, uh, who was an evangelist just starting out in the 40s, he was kind of a tall, dark, and handsome guy from uh, the South uh, who had just the right drawl. He was sort of like the Elvis of Southern Baptist land, you know, and he could draw crowds with the help of other churches coming together, and he started uh, crusades that went across the country. You've probably heard of him, even if you're uh, too young to have ever known about any of his crusades. His name is legendary. And he is the one who really pushed and leaned into this phrase, born again. And he made it a quantifier uh, so that you could tell somebody if they asked you, are you born again? And you could say with confidence, yes, I'm born again. And generally it meant that somewhere along your journey, uh, you said yes to Jesus, and maybe even you used language like, I asked God into my heart, uh, that kind of a thing, and I know the day that I did it, and the Gideons uh, who get Bibles all over the world, uh, they even made that part of their thing. So if you ever uh, get a New Testament from a Gideon, uh, you can open up the page and it'll say, when, did you, when were you born again? And you can actually put the date in there of when you did it. And there was some real genius to that. Uh, it was helpful in some ways, but the real bummer of it was is that it really missed the entire point of what born again is about. Uh, my doctoral thesis was, uh, was subtitled Born Again. <laughs> uh, and it talked about um, transforming those who think they don't need transforming. Uh, helping people realize that born again isn't a once and done thing where we sign in our Gideon Bibles, but really the goal that God has in the whole grand story is that we get born again and again and again and again for the rest of our lives. Uh, and don't think that it sounds exhausting, even though sometimes it can feel that way. It's a good thing. It means that there's a, an expectation that we're going to continue growing on this journey. It never stops. We never stop. We never get bored with it because we can't get bored uh, with a God that is so large and so magnificent. And the language of born again, of being transformed, of seeing things so differently, shows up in the Bible. In fact, uh, if we really look into this and uh, hear what Borg has to say, he says that in the Gospels and in the rest of the New Testament, death and resurrection, dying and rising, are again and again a metaphor for personal transformation for the psychological, spiritual process at the center of the Christian life. And so I just want to share with you a series of Bible verses uh, that really illustrate this, that make it so abundantly clear. So we catch up with the Apostle Paul. This is in his last letter to the Corinthians. He says, because of this decision, we don't evaluate people by what they have or how they look. That would have been the old way, the pre-transformed way of seeing. So that's how we look at people in our culture through cultural lenses and evaluation measures. But he says, because we made a different decision, we looked at the Messiah that way once and we got it all wrong, as you know. We certainly don't look at him that way anymore. Now we look inside. And what we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start, is created new. The old life is gone. A new life burgeons. Look at it. To a different 
church. He talked about the difference between his old self and his new self, his untransformed and his transformed self. And Paul says here, I tried keeping rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work. So I quit being a lawman, legalistic, so that I could be God's man. Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. And he goes on to say, My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. And I'm no longer driven to impress God. Man, that's powerful. How many, how many of us could say this? How many of us struggle still to impress God, to win God over? <laughs> I saw one hand raise up, so thank you for one honest person here today. I'll be the second, right? Listen to what Paul says. My ego is no longer central. It's no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion, and I'm no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine, but it is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm not going to go back on that. This guy has seen things differently. He says to a Roman church that he's never met, he says, I'm absolutely convinced that nothing Nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. Let's just read that again. And I want to remind you that the guy who's writing this uh, used to teach people about the ways that we restrict the love of God in our life. He was the ultimate religious lawyer. He was Harvard trained. He was the up and coming guy in all things Judaism uh, that was trained by the best so that he could train the best. He, he brags in other places about his former self and talks about how he was the smartest and the best law keeping Jewish man on the planet. <laughs> And now he's saying, he's not saying forget all that ethical behavior, but he's saying that it is so off point if we're trying to win the love and the favor of God because I believe he had a, I know he had a breakthrough. He kept talking about it over and over in the book of Acts. He shares it three different times about how he experienced the living Christ, the Spirit of God breaking through to him and changing his eyes, changing his heart, changing his head, which eventually led to changing his footsteps and his hands. He says again, I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, and he's talk, by the way, he's talking to a church that is deeply divided. He's talking to a church where the Jewish Christians are so sure of their Jewishness as being the central thing that they don't really want the non-Jewish Christians around the same table. He's never met them before, but he's taking them to school, and he's telling them, you're missing everything. You and your legalism, you're missing everything by telling others they have to do thus and so in order to win the favor of God that they already have. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our Master, 
has embraced us. And I, I experienced this reality uh, multiple times in my life. And this represents to me uh, the reality and the hope that this rebirth and rebirth and rebirth is how it's supposed to be and we have to get over ourselves <laughs> of assuming that we somehow manipulate God into not loving us or loving us more. Yeah, there, were, there was a time, I've shared this with uh, every group that I've taken this uh, course through, um, that a lot of the things and the concepts that we're talking about were new concepts uh, for me because I grew up in a Baptist world, um, even though I grew up in a mainline Baptist tradition, which was very friendly and broader than most Baptist traditions, which were evangelical, it was still a fairly conservative thing. And so a lot of ideas, a lot of the new stuff that are really stretchy uh, for those of you who are taking this course uh, with me um, were, were new and difficult for me as well. And so I'm a pastor getting up here 18 years ago or more, and I'm trying to wade through this, telling the people, uh, you, some of you who are still who are here at that time, uh, that, uh, you know, this is how it's going, but I'm fuzzy, you know, I'm, I'm learning as I'm going here. And there, was, there were parts of me and parts of my attitude uh, that in my head were saying, uh, God should not be uh, with me at all <laughs> on this journey. And I'm pretty confident uh, God is not going to be using me anytime soon because of my state of confusion. I just felt like the last person on the planet who should be up here saying anything because I was sorting stuff out. And yet in the middle of that, Actually, especially in that, when I would be fully aware of it, sitting down here, well, there were pews before they were chairs and tables, sitting in the pew waiting for my time to come up, just saying, God, I, what, what am I, how am I supposed to deal with all this stuff? It was in those moments, those moments of despair, <laughs> that I sensed God showing up the most. And any time... I was feeling, you know, a little too confident were the times where God seemed the most absent. <laughs> maybe because that's how it's supposed to be. That maybe when we are vulnerable and we're open and honest about our journey and honest about our struggle, that's when God is able to show us God's love most profoundly. So I'm, I'm, I'm a guy that I agree with Paul not just because I'm supposed to as a pastor, but because I've experienced this. In my earlier years, in, uh, uh, in college, you know, I made some mistakes I did not feel good about and felt like God would want nothing to do with me. And yet, it was in that moment that God met me. Despite how I felt about myself, God showed up. In my ignorance earlier than that, in high school, uh, when I wondered if there was more, God showed up even in my ignorance to say there's more and an experience of the more that I'll never forget. Jesus talks about this. This is when he's talking to Nicodemus, uh, who was a religious authoritarian himself, uh, part of the Pharisee class, we think. Uh, and this is the guy that came under cover of night. And Jesus, just before this, had this statement where Jesus said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. 
And Nicodemus, who's thinking literally, is thinking, well, how is that possible to go back in the mother's womb? You'll, you'll kill her, you know, kind of a thing. And so Jesus says, you know, just, you can just hear his inner voice saying, metaphor, idiot, metaphor. <laughs> but anyway, he says, you're not listening. Let me say it again. Unless a person submits to this original creation, the wind hovering over the water creation, that's in Genesis chapter 1. So the Spirit of God hovering over the chaos of creation. The wind hovering over the water creation, the invisible, moving the visible. A baptism into a new life. It's not possible to enter God's kingdom. When you look at a baby, it's just that. A body you can look at and touch. But the person who takes shape within is formed by something you can't see and touch. The Spirit and becomes a living spirit. So don't be surprised when I tell you that you have to be born from above, out of this world, so to speak. You know well enough how the wind blows this way and that. You hear it rustling through the trees, but you have no idea where it comes from or where it's headed next. That's the way it is with everyone born from above, by the wind of God, by the Spirit of God. And so my question for you is, how has this already happened to you in the past? Because I know that it has. Now, you may be here, um, maybe even as a draggy, you didn't really want to come, but you're here because it's Mother's Day and they played the, the guilt card, and so here you are. <laughs> Which, that's fine. That's what good mothers are supposed to do everywhere. Uh, however, um, you may be thinking that there is no God, and we, we have people who come to Crosswalk who are really uncertain of that and pretty sure there isn't and all that. That's fine. Well, let's talk about not God then. Let's talk about the ways that love has transformed you. Because I know, even if you don't know, I know that love has transformed you in some way. From the moment you came out of the womb and you stared into your caregiver's eyes, most of that for us, that's going to be our... our physical mothers, you did not know a world apart from those eyes that were staring back from you. In fact, it's a stage of development where we don't even know that we're a separate being uh, for a period of time until we start to become more familiar, our eyes take shape, we start to develop enough connections in our brain uh, to realize there's a greater world that we are, are separate from. In those moments, in the love of your caregiver, of your mother, for a lot of us, uh, you were being transformed. You were being transformed and shaped by the love that was provided for you, and you did not even know it. Later on, um, I'm going to guess that uh, just because this tends to be in our culture more of a feminine thing than a masculine thing, but I'm going to guess that somewhere along the way you skinned your knee uh, you got in an accident, you got your feelings hurt, whatever, and again, I'm just going to broad stroke this, but my hunch is, is that for most of you, uh, you are not turning to male figures at that point to find comfort and solace. But you are probably more likely finding comfort uh, from a feminine voice and a feminine face who showed you love and compassion, who helped you get over your wounded knee, so to speak. I'm going to guess that uh, for a lot of you, as you went through your stages of life, uh, that 
romantic love was somehow part of the equation. And all of a sudden, you started to see the world differently. Even if it was just an infatuation, somebody who didn't even know your name yet. <laughs> your world started to change as you started to imagine what that love would be like. Your love for siblings could be just the same. Your love for parents could be just the same. Over time, love changes you if love is love. Because love, if we allow it to go to its depths, it must change us again and again and again. Lynn and I talk about this um, fairly regularly. Uh, we've been married almost, uh, let's see, a week from Tuesday, it'll be 31 years. Isn't that cool? Yeah. I don't know how she did it. <laughs> really, I don't know how she did it. But we talk about uh, this because we're, we're not, uh, we're opposites in some ways. Uh, our personalities clash in some ways. I've, I've shared that with you. The way we speak are different from each other. The way we think, different from each other. Uh, the way we enter into new situations, different from each other. Uh, you'll hear Enneagram talk around crosswalk, and we're due for another workshop on that, Stephen Corley, so dust off your stuff. Uh, but she's an Enneagram 6, which is a gift to the world because they perceive threat long before it shows up on anybody else's radar. Uh, can lead to anxiety in a lot of ways, as it does for her. She hates to fly. Uh, she hates uh, taking Highway 1 uh, on Big Sur or pretty much anywhere on Highway 1 <laughs> for those reasons because she is very aware of the threat that's going on. Uh, she's, but that gives her a radar that has been incredibly helpful for me because I'm an Enneagram 3. And I'm so focused on doing this kind of a thing uh, that I don't even know the threat's there until it's too late. And so she's my radar. And I can't tell you how many times she's had this inner sense uh, about somebody or something that I'm just oblivious to. But I've taken her at her word at times, not all the time, and it's turned out right. It's turned out right. And so she's a gift for me that way. But what we've learned, because this creates conflict in our, in our life, in our marriage, I think we have a very human marriage. Uh, we're two human beings that sometimes <laughs> go at it <laughs> like cats and dogs. I think that's sometimes okay, you know, there's nothing weird going on or, her, you know, you know what I mean, right? She's not, uh, you know, we're, we're safe, we're all good and all that. So there's no abuse happening is what I'm getting at. No need to call the police or anything. But um, we're both strong people, and sometimes that comes out in very, very real ways. And we share what love looks like for us. And the reality is, is we recognize that it is the coming through uh, those conflicts uh, that deepens our love for each other, doesn't take away. And that as we've gone through so many stages of life, starting in our 20s, uh, you know, and now somehow after being married 30 years, I'm still in my 40s and we're working out together. <laughs> I don't know how that worked. But now it's just a different game, but because we are both maturing because love does that, it just changes and nuances the whole thing. Do you know what I'm saying? And this is true for deep friendships, 
uh, that may have started off in one way, but as life changes, just finds a new expression. It's changed in my relationship with my siblings. Uh, as we've all kind of gone through life's ups and downs, we see each other differently, we treat each other differently, we love each other differently than we were able to before. As my parents are aging, my dad is 90, my mom will be 88 in, uh, in another month. Uh, this changes everything. And our love changes with it, and that love changes us. Love is transformative. This is not a textbook thing that we can think our way into. It's transformative. Sometimes uh, the feeling of love, the awe that comes with love, shows up in very natural spaces. Like some of you, I wouldn't be surprised if you're going to take a lovely drive somewhere. Uh, may, it's a great day to take a lovely drive. So maybe some of you, I know some of you, are going to go up valley. And I wonder if the beauty of the valley has been lost on you. Or I wonder as you take your journey wherever you're going to go, I wonder if you can see it with fresh eyes all over again and recognize the majesty of the beauty of creation right where we are. And you don't have to be that creative to see it in Northern California. I grew up in Kansas, let me tell you. <laughs> you live in an incredibly beautiful space. Do you have the eyes to see it? Do you remember the first time you were in awe because of the beauty of creation? Some of you may go to the coast today. Do you remember the first time when you saw it, when it overwhelmed you? These are transformative, shaping things that are happening to us and in us. The only time those things are lost is when we become hardened to them and we no longer have space for them. Which gets back to this whole transforming thing. I, more and more I think about it, the more and more I'm convinced that Jesus also had one of these transforming moments where he went from one way of thinking, which was probably very, very aligned with John the Baptist and his apocalyptic teaching about get ready because God's going to do a thing right now. Uh, it's going to be pretty terrible, so we got to get our lives in order to make sure that we're welcome with God and we're ready to do whatever God calls us to do. There was probably some, some zealot influence in John's thinking a little bit that, that may have had a, a violent component, like be ready to take up arms just in case. But whatever happened to Jesus late in his life, I think it blew his mind, opened his heart, and I couldn't see the world any differently. And it began a transformation process in him that when he came back from his camping trip, illustrated in that uh, tapestry right there, that he spoke a whole different language. And he kept growing, and he kept learning, and his understanding of the scriptures kept broadening, and his welcome mat kept extending to more and more and more people. Starting kind of closed off, like this is a Jewish thing, but then recognizing that God was even bigger than that and opening it up to very non-Jewish people, even to the point where he's welcoming a Samaritan woman in conversation. This is crazy stuff that only love can do to change. I'm wondering how your transformation process is going. And now that's looking for you because I'm sure that that's it. And one of the dangers 
of Billy Graham's work, and he did good work. I don't want to, you know, totally throw him under the bus because there were good things. There were some things that if we could go back in time, and I think Billy, you know, since he died several years ago, uh, I think now if he has the gaze of history before him, I think he would go back and say some different things about what he should have said about being born again and what that should do to lead us toward racial uh, justice and looking out for neighbor in ways that he failed to do absolutely. But probably the greatest mistake that was made is he made born again a once-and-done moment. And we thought it was like a badge, like a merit badge, so that we could say, well, I'm a born-again Christian. Well, there's some truthiness to that because we do get changed. But hear clearly that Jesus was not ever intending for us to just say yes once and then be done. Because at the end of the day, it's about transformation and change. It's about us ever evolving by the power of love underneath us, by the call of love around us, and by the future of love that is ahead of us. How does that look? Paul speaks to a divided church in ancient Corinth, a church that has let go of love for a while, and instead they're being very cultural. They're comparing each other on who's the smartest, who's the best, who has the coolest stuff, who has the better leadership skills. And so uh, the church is deeply divided based on these kinds of fraction, fractals. And, and Paul calls it out and says, look, you all need each other. You all matter. And then he breaks for a second just to remind people in what we now call the love chapter of uh, his first letter to the Corinthian church. And he like stops and he just has to stop and just say this. If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I, there we go, if I give everything I own to the poor, and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. How many of you have experienced religious people who seem to be bankrupt <laughs> on love? How many times uh, have we seen this witnessed, you know, in a large capacity in our own nation about people claiming to be speaking for Jesus, and yet Hatred is coming out of their mouths. Love is the measure. Love is our motive. Love is the power through which we are transformed. And so that's why Paul, kind of exasperated, just wants to give a measure. And by the way, this is one of those reasons why you keep coming back to church uh, and keep studying. Because if we're left to our own devices and we never ask the question, well, what exactly is love? What does it look like? If we never go deep on that question, you are going to end up with an enculturated view of love, and that's it. And while that will get you somewhere, it's not going to get you that deep because our culture doesn't like transformative love, at least what's based in and spread through a lot of our media stuff. We like it easy. We like it warm and fuzzy. Don't make it hard. But the love of Jesus is willing to give it all up. Paul defines love just getting started 
with these words. Love never gives up. Love's care, love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't need have. Love doesn't strut. Love that. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel, takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. This is just a short paragraph on the depths of love. But it's this love that transforms us. I think the last time that I may have taught this uh, in this way was several years ago. And I remember uh, looking back at my notes that I was talking to you about the, the modes of transformation and all that, the how-tos, and you got to get your mind straight, and you got to get your body behind it, and your passion, and all that, and then it sort of helps all things along. And those things are fine. But I just more and more believe that this is not something that can be gamed. You can't game faith. You can't game God. You can't fabricate transformation. You can only be open to it. You can only be humbled by it. And humbled in a good way. You can only be overcome by it. And so my instruction to you is not, you know, the three steps to ongoing transformation because that will only get you so far. You can set the table. There are a whole lot of things that will help, uh, help this process along throughout your whole life. Lifelong learning, all the movements of God, that we, Jesus, that we talk about around here. But at the end of the day, it's love. At the end of the day, love calls us deeper unto depth, calls us higher, calls us longer, it is love that transforms. It is what has gotten us here. It is what gets us over our greatest pains. It's what heals our deepest wounds. It's what turns enemies into friends. It is our only hope for shalom. It is the source and end of our lives. And it is here for the breathing and the taking. Just like our breasted mother's love, El Shaddai. Let's pray together and then we'll have this final prayer we'll say together. What do we say to you, God? What do we say to you who are with us like gravity, with us like air, with us in our next breath and the one after that and all the ones before it. What do we say to you who has given us so much? What do we say to you who we have recognized so little in comparison to how much you're around us? Not to guilt trip ourselves or feel bad about it, but what do we say to you in all of your majesty and all of your care for us? God, help us to be humbled. If it takes a Paul kind of Damascus experience where we're stopped in our tracks, so be it. 
if it's something that's, that happens in a sacred act like it was for Jesus in his baptism, I think, bring it on. If it's a car ride up valley or to the coast or to the mountains or just somewhere to the bay, somewhere pretty, which is just right outside the door, may that do it. But above all else, God, do it. Help us see. Help us be vulnerable to the incredible that is all around us, to the love that is everywhere, that pervades everything and is available all the time. When we are tempted, God, to settle for something less or to settle for a cultural definition which will never get us there, may we pause, may you remind us by the nudge of your spirit to take a breath and wonder, what does love look like in this moment? How would Jesus instruct me in this moment? Spirit of God, how would you lead me in love in this moment before we say our next word, before we take our next action, before we take our next step? God, help us. Help us now to be transformed by your love. And for today and all of our tomorrows, may we constantly be open in awe to the love that will never let us go, that will love us no matter what, that will never run dry, and will one day welcome us home. To that end, we pray this prayer, this translation of a prayer that Jesus taught us. Say it with me out loud. Eternal Spirit, earth maker, pain bearer, life giver, source of all this is and that shall be, Father and Mother of us all, loving God in whom is heaven, the hallowing of your name echo through the universe, the way of your justice be followed by peoples of the world, your heavenly will be done by all created beings, your commonwealth of peace and freedom sustain our hope and come on earth. With the bread we need for today, feed us. In the hurts we absorb from one another, forgive us. In times of temptation and test, strengthen us. From trials too great to endure, spare us. From the grip of all that is evil, free us. For you reign in the glory of the power that is love now and forever. Amen. Thank you for coming today. Women, we love you. We can't do it without you. We're so grateful for you. Go in the strength of who you are because you're stronger than most men I know. And we will see you next week. Thanks for coming. Yep.